Hello, listeners, and welcome to season three of Film is Lit. I'm Laura, the film expert. And my name is Danny, the film expert. This is a podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. Now, we got another barn burner of an episode, a returning guest. Laura, take it away. Our favorite returning guest, our first returning guest ever of the podcast, please welcome Dr. Sean Flory. Woo! Hi, guys. <laughs> welcome back. The crowds demanded it. All seven <laughs> listeners demanded it. Yes, the Dune episode was an absolute favorite, an absolute crowd pleaser. So thanks again for being on our podcast again and getting our listens up. <laughs> well, I'd be very happy to be on it again. Just so I just another line that I can put on my CV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Is there anything that you would like to say about yourself before we jump in? Because I trampled your introduction last time. <laughs> Well, this is uh, this topic tonight is at least a little bit closer to what I actually study in time. Um, mm -hmm. Dune is my favorite book, but it's not really what in my in my field of study. Um, I study Renaissance literature, um, so this is at least only two or three hundred years <laughs> past yeah, that. In English so. literature, what is that? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so as Dr. Flory mentioned, or sorry. Sean, excuse me, I'm not in college anymore. Thank you. Uh, we are going to cover Jane Austen's classic novel, Emma, Emma. and the 2020 remake, or there was an Emma before this, wasn't there? No? This oh, yeah, this is, so there was an old movie, and then there was the Gwyneth Paltrow adaptation. From the 90s, yeah. And then also Clueless in the 90s, which is based off of Emma. Did you know Is that? Really? Clueless? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. It's an uh, oh. updated high school version of Emma. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Oh, wow. Oh. We should watch that. Well, fun <laughs> fact. Um, yes. Yeah, so we are covering the 2020 movie directed by Autumn. DeWild. Thank you. <laughs> And that introduces our first fun fact of the evening, which is that this movie was the last movie that Dan and I, Danny and I got to see in theaters this year. It came out in March and we were lucky enough to go to a showing where Autumn DeWilde did a, an interview at the Arclight Hollywood and they surprised us by having Elijah Wood actually moderate. moderate. Yeah. The discussion, wow. which, which was, was so really cool, fun. and apparently Elijah Wood is a huge fan of Autumn DeWilde's and has been begging to be in one of her movies for a long time, and he wasn't cast in Emma, but he wanted to be, <laughs> so I guess he thought the next best thing was to give an interview with her, which was really fun. So we got to listen to her talk about the movie and hear some fun facts that we wouldn't have learned if we hadn't seen her. Yeah. And this will always have a special place in our hearts since it was the last movie that we got to see in 2020 before the pandemic hit. Yeah, because <laughs> it was nuts that that was the case. And yeah, Autumn DeWilde comes from a photography background. So Elijah Wood is also a big photographer. And so that they met via that, that route. That's how they became friends. And yeah. yeah, so... That really was... tell, tell that from the, how deliberately framed everything in, in that movie is. Okay, if we just if we're gonna just jump in, I was just gonna say it's so clear that she has a photographic background because every shot in this movie is so perfectly composed 
And she talked about how she really wanted to match the pastoral style of painting that was popular during that time. And so after watching, this was only the second time that I watched it when Danny and I saw it this time last night. And every single shot is such a painting. It's so true. She completely executed on that front. It's every single shot. I'm just going to keep going on. So I might as well just stop right now because we should jump into our journeys. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to start. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to stop myself. Okay, so, yeah. I, yeah. Once she gets going, there's nothing I can do. She's just like, well, you just got to let her tire herself out, uh, give her a juice box, and she'll be done by eight. Um, well, yeah. Well, Doc, how about you start with your overall journey and relationship with this source material and, and the movie, the 2020 movie? Uh, well, with with the with the book, I believe I read it when I was in college, not for a class. I took a I took a studies in the British novels class where we read uh, we read a lot of really good a lot of really good novels, but one of them was Pride and Prejudice, which was um, the first Austen novel I'd ever read, and I really liked it. So outside of class, I decided that I was going to read all of Austin's novels, which is fairly easy because there's only Mm -hmm. like five of them. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time that I read Emma. I believe I didn't read it again until I actually taught it for the first time. And here at University of Jamestown, I I taught a, I teach a studies in the British novels class Mm -hmm. and I've got to have an Austin novel. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think in my freshman, in my composition two class, I always have, I very often have my freshman read read Pride and Prejudice. So I was just like, well, I can't repeat Pride and Prejudice. So I decided to pick pick one that I thought was almost as good <laughs> and just as accessible. And so I chose Emma. And it's always been, it's always gone over very well. I think Laura mm-hmm. could probably tell, <laughs> say more <laughs> I'm about- holding back. I'm holding could, back. could say more about my class. But, uh, so I saw, I've, I've, I've definitely read it several times and it's probably my second favorite Austin novel after Pride and Prejudice. Um, in terms of the movie, I saw that they were making it and I was like really interested because I actually really enjoyed both Clueless. I saw that in the theaters and the, uh, the Emma Thompson, not Emma Thompson, the Gwyneth Paltrow version back in the 90s. And I think both of them hold up really well. I mean, in some ways, Gwyneth Paltrow is the perfect actress to play Emma because she's rich and (laughs) doesn't seem to, and her wealth and privilege sort of seem to make her, so she doesn't actually have to use the brain that she seems to actually have. (laughs) 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 For want of a better word, there's my summary of the theme of Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, when I saw that they that they had made this, I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater, but it came out because of the pandemic, I'm assuming. It came out mm-hmm. fairly fairly quickly on streaming. And so I I went ahead and bought it because it's like, well, this is getting really great really great reviews. So I was just like, well, it's fourteen bucks. Um, how bad could it be? And then I watched it and I was my mind was just blown at how good it was. <laughs> I think I also might have texted you fifteen times. Have you seen Emma yet? Have you seen Emma yet? Have you, you seen Emma you, yet? You I very well might have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um so I just and I just watching uh watched it a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, before mm-hmm. we're the first time we we're going to record this podcast and it was just as good the second time around, which is not always <laughs> <Yeah>. the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, very rewatchable for sure. Very rewatchable. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say it always gets better because, especially if you haven't read the book, it's really helpful to know 
characters' motivations when you're reading Jane Austen's novels and obviously when you're watching this movie because they stick very close to the language in the novel. Mm -hmm. So I think if you know at least a summary or if you go a little deeper, like motivations of the characters, then it's really a lot easier to pick up on those little details that Autumn DeWilde was very aware of and she intentionally put into the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Do you want to go next or do you want me to... All right, I, for an hour I'll now. go next just so I know that you're gonna go on for a while as I went on for a while in the Dune episode I, I listened to that the other day I'm like can you shut up Danny <laughs> I just keep on yapping um well I did not read the book in high school but I was assigned to Jane Austen novels both Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility Now, I want to correct a mistake I made back in the Pride and Prejudice episode. I said my high school teacher, Mrs. Gothier, taught that in her honors literature class. That was false. She did not. I was thinking of another class, Mr. Tavelde's AP Lit class. Very confusing. I'm sorry for getting those uh, mixed up. Mrs. Gothier wonderful teacher and she a listener of this podcast she's That's one why of, you had to correct it. yeah well i owe this to her uh yeah and she, she reached out very politely saying that like oh we actually didn't you know you didn't learn this and i'm like oh right i i kind of knew that in the back of my mind i don't know why i i said her name i think that speaks to how well she stuck out as a teacher in my high school experience but I'd want to shout out her teaching of Catcher in the Rye. That was the first time where she kind of introduced the topic of appreciating a piece of art, but not necessarily enjoying it. I think that applies for a lot of students reading Catcher in the the Rye. You know, it didn't seem like everyone was loving reading that book. And it's not necessarily my favorite book, but I find myself thinking about the themes of that book constantly. And like, Mm -hmm. I I think about that book all the time, actually, it's weird. And, you know, it all came from her class of, I I really appreciate that book. And she taught me how to appreciate something, even if you don't like the story. Sounds like a gateway for your relationship with Jane Austen's writing. Yes. Well, (laughs) well, yeah. So yeah, I apologize, uh, Mrs. Gothier. But yeah, I, I read Pride and Prejudice, Sits and Sensibility, in Mr. Tavelli's class, I just really couldn't get through them without spark notes. I'm sorry. I, as I've said in those previous episodes, I also respect the art and the craft of the writing and the wit there, but it's not my personal type of story or book. So yeah, I never got around to reading Emma, but I did see Clueless back in high school, not knowing that it was a loose modern adaptation of Emma. And then then I think a year, no, like six months before this movie came out, we were seeing Jojo Rabbit, I think. And the trailer for... That's right! uh, Yeah, the trailer for Emma came up. And I actually didn't know any new Emma movie was coming out. I knew nothing about it. We were both fans of Anya Taylor-Joy, but that's it. Huge fans. Yeah, and and then the trailer comes on and Laura just explodes in excitement. Kind of started crying? Yeah. And then Bill Nye, which we both love. Oh, we'll talk about I Bill mean, Nye, but yes. also another one of my favorite actors. Oh boy. Yeah. And we saw that and it the trailer was great. And oh. we're like and even though I wasn't a fan of Jane Austen, I'm like, okay, this looks like something that I would actually like to watch. And we're fortunate we're in LA, there's tons of Q and A's with 
directors or actors of the movies that they show. And of course, before the pandemic. And yeah, we saw that I was playing at the Arclight Hollywood, which is right down the street from us. And we got tickets right away. We were able to see it. It was a wonderful night, wonderful time. Oh, and something we can look back on. Yeah. And yeah. Well, two arms. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of my whole, I think, as you'll come to hear, is that this is the most accessible, at least for someone like me, who's not a fan of Jane Austen's writing. I was really able to latch on to this movie and to the story and to understand most of the motivations. I'm still unclear about certain aspects, and I think the writing and the storytelling could have been a little bit better for, you know, someone like me who has just no frame of reference for the story, but I really, really enjoy the movie. So, and Anna Taylor-Joy, I mean, what a star. Uh, she's, she's going places. Everything well, she's da- in. Danny, you should revisit Jane Austen, but treat it like it's Dune in terms of like the density, in terms of the density of information that you have to have. If it was, well, just imagine <sighs> Dune without the glossary. <laughs> I well, you gotta have a glossary. I knew, <laughs> Yikes, that's a tall. And see, the thing about why I love sci-fi so much is that it it is dealing with these complex themes. But sometimes it's just cool to have a big old space worm in there, or like to have a flying spaceship. <laughs> like sometimes that's just cool. And Jane Austen has rich themes as well. I was gonna say, if you don't say that she has complex themes, I'm uh, gonna slap right. and throw the high engagement right What I'm it. yeah, what I'm saying is that there are complex themes in there. But like sometimes it's like, you know, why not like time travel? Throw that in there. Or like uh Well there's plenty of Jane Austen fan fiction that you can go ahead and read by yourself. Uh anyway, should I go into my Yeah, dream? Oh yeah I'm done. I will keep this short. All right. I'm gonna I... get a drink while Laura is not keeping it short. <laughs> Yes, yeah. please. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> so I don't remember when I read my first Jane Austen novel. I'm pretty sure it was Pride and Prejudice, but I did not take English 101 with Sean. So I think I read that on my own. And then uh, because I decided to major in English, I started British Lit, I think, as one of my upper division English classes. And Emma was in the mix with a lot of other good literature that I really, really enjoyed. And Emma very quickly became my favorite Jane Austen novel. I know that's probably controversial because, of course, a lot of people like Pride and Prejudice. But I find Emma Woodhouse to be the most interesting, flawed character in literature. I, she's so unaware in the beginning and she becomes so aware in these very emotional scenes that I feel like I can really relate to because I think I learned to be a more loving person or a more more empathetic person in moments where I had been very rude and someone called me out for it. I think I was a very unself-aware person as a young lady. And I think I needed that element of shame to (laughs) bring me to my knees. And so reading, especially the scene where Emma is called out for being rude to Mrs. Bates or to Miss Bates is really reminiscent of how I became an adult. So I just really like how Emma becomes, she starts out the novel as a very independent and confident person but she crosses the line a lot and I just anyway I see myself in that a lot and so 
reading this novel and then having it just be a little bit less focused on the main character's love story than Pride and Prejudice is. I just, I really connect with that character in that way. And so when I saw the trailer to Emma and right off the bat, I could already tell that the director understood the source material so well. And Anya Taylor-Joy was in it. Bill Nye, he was in it. We didn't know who Johnny Flynn was, but I thought he already looked like a perfect Mr. Knightley from the trailer. All of these things sort of came together into this perfect package. So when we were able to see it, I I think I went comatose a little bit in the theater. <laughs> and I just, I want to give my absolute thanks to Autumn the wild <laughs> for creating this perfect piece of i mean there to me like i really struggle to come up with a better example of an adapted piece of literature she just she understands and to hear her talk about the love that she had for this book going into the writing of the script made me feel like she had read my mind and just taken everything apart and then put it all back together again in exactly the way that I wanted to see the book on the screen. So thank you, Autumn DeWild. Thank you to all the actors who did a perfect job acting in this movie. And thank you, Sean, for teaching me to enjoy uh, Jane Austen as it should be enjoyed. That's my journey. <laughs> Wow, the under 20 minutes. You <laughs> killed it. Well, Laura, I think I, it's... Oh, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I think that Emma was actually Austin's favorite of her novels. Oh, <laughs> so, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I can understand it. I mean, it's so well-written. It's To me, it's very airtight. To me, the motivations are so interesting and i know that she has a lot of very similar characters in her novels for mm -hmm. example emma woodhouse's father is such a hypochondriac he's such a funny character and i know that there are other characters like that who are sort of older like for, like in mansfield park there's mrs norris mm -hmm. and in pride and prejudice there's elizabeth's mother but no one so perfectly is is just so funny like i remember talking about Mr. Woodhouse in your class. And I remember you pointing out the fact that his favorite food is gruel. And he goes on this whole conversation about how gruel is just the healthiest thing that you can have. And he always tells people not to eat cake and custard. And he's, it's, it's so funny. Like, I just think these characters are so well developed and so three-dimensional that if you strip away the Austin-ness of it, all of these characters are very recognizable in everybody's lives. Mm. So again, I just, uh, this is my favorite Austin well, she, she deploys them so well, because Emma, mm. even more than most of her other novels, is about the, is about characters being in a cage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, emotionally and socially in, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. I mean, I mean that's, that's kind of Emma's problem. Um, the, the reason why Mr. Woodhouse is such a great character is because he is this, he is ridiculous. He is a ridiculous yeah. human being. <laughs> but because he's the highest ranking person in this mm -hmm. society, 
he's just this emotional black hole who, who mm-hmm. sucks in all this attention that everybody has to pay <laughs> attention to him because he is at the top of the social pyramid at that point. So yep. what else are they going to do? Except exactly. Just- well, and, and I'm just thinking, I'm hearing you say that. And so number one, you talk about how all these characters are in this socioeconomic cage and think about the images that Autumn DeWild uses to portray Mr. Woodhouse. It's so funny when those two, yes, when those two servants keep having to take those screens around and and stop the drafts. Do you feel a draft by the knees? By the knees, yes. That is so funny. And everybody has to pay attention to him and he has to be the center of the room. He has to be the closest to the fireplace. Like everything he says is so silly, but everybody has to listen. And we can, like, yeah, we can talk ahead. about the character. We can talk about the actors who play the, play all the servants, the footmen oh. in this, because I, I don't know who they are. They all deserve supporting actor Oscars. Oh, 100%. That's, that, that, that's my favorite addition to the entire yeah. to, to the entire book is just all these footmen who are looking at the people they're working for and in every expression it's just like these fucking rich assholes is basically <laughs> yeah. what they're saying with their eyes honestly so and again there's this hilarious scene where they have to open that frame that mm-hmm. That's oh the gosh, scene I'm thinking of. Yeah, the, the frame that Mr. Elton The frame bought. that Mr. Elton, yeah. And they have to like, they literally have to like put their hands on the the little doorknobs, but like at the same time, they like pull the screen and then they like, walk, they take a step back and put their hands behind their back. And it's so funny to watch them. It's so funny. They do an incredible job. I, I totally agree. That was such a great addition. Which I think, I think she had to add that because, in you know, we don't, have a kind of class system in the same way that the British did Mm -hmm. in the early 1800s. So Austin's original readers, they would have known that there would have been all these servants around. Mm -hmm. Um, And having those servants who have to do the whims of these ridiculous assholes. Because they're all ridiculous people, except for Mr. Yeah, Knightley. Yeah. And even Mr. Knightley is kind of ridiculous yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's a little Yeah, with those mutton chops of his. Yeah. Oh, and that, oh my gosh, that scene where he like, so first, actually, if we want to talk about like stifling socioeconomic systems or whatever, that's not very uh, eloquent of me. But when we first see Mr. Knightley and he's getting dressed... Mm-hmm. And those the footmen are all around him and he has that starched collar and then they go around his neck twice with that terrible like knot thing that keeps the his cravat chin up or whatever like it this. is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like the boots and pulling off the boots and they're stinky and all that stuff. And then I just love that climax of emotion when he leaves because he doesn't think that emma loves him he leaves the room and he just starts like yanking off all of this stifling clothing and he just like Mm -hmm. throws it on the floor and he like eventually just ends up on his back like in this absolute emotional crisis and then that footman walks in and sees him on the (laughs) the floor and he just yeah does a complete 180 he turns around and closes the door right behind him it's so funny and it's you get the feeling that that's not the first time this footman has walked in on an emotional crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just like, all right, I, I see what's going on and this is not going to be what I'm going to deal with today. <laughs> Which that scene was a, 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 an interesting and I thought really good addition to the mm-hmm. book. Cause it's that, that's, ob- that's obviously not in the novel. Cause mm-hmm. 
Mr. Knightley is, you know, sort of this asteroid that comes into Emma's gravitational pull every once in a while and then just exits because it's all from Emma's Emma's point of view. So we only see the see the we only see the events from the way that she sees them, which is like one of the main pieces of magic of the novel in terms of the characterization. But I think in terms of adapting it for a modern audience and getting modern audiences to recognize what Austin was really up to, you need a scene like that. Because what, what this movie gets more than most Austin adaptations get is how fucking horny Austin's novels actually are. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's... <laughs> And everyone, yeah, it's just a bunch of good-looking people being very serious. And, and oh, this movie, Autumn DeWild, she clearly took uh, classes at the Joe Wright School of, it's all about the hands, baby. It's all about the hands. Joe Wright's the director of Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, that scene I'm pointing out, that scene at the ball where Mr. Knightley and Emma both on their own come to realize like, oh, maybe there is something there. Maybe this platonic love is really romantic. And a fun fact about that scene, that, that ballroom scene, is you can see that everyone in that room is, are wearing gloves except for Mr. Knightley oh, and I Emma. That. I didn't notice They're that. the only two people not wearing gloves and I looked this up and yeah, apparently Autumn DeWild did that on purpose, wanted them to have bare hands and she cleared it with a film's etiquette expert just to make sure that was allowed uh, because the reasoning is that they just had eaten dinner, which they would have removed their gloves and maybe they didn't you know, put them back on. And so yeah, the, the amount of sexual tension between the two just with having their hands go in and out right. and the the constant eyes locked in oh my and gosh and when the dance ends and he has his arm around her waist and she sort of squeezes his hand like because he's about to like pull away but she sort of like keeps it in her hand for mm -hmm. like a hair's breath of a second and you're like oh shit that <laughs> was that is one of the hottest scenes i've ever Seriously. seen this this and, film should be rated x because uh, we watched two people well, doing jane the next if jane austen watched it she might agree but no but it's it's so smart and i feel like autumn DeWilde earned that subtlety because she built that subtlety right like like you can't you couldn't have a scene like i don't know uh sean if you listen to our mansfield park episode but there's this terrible tone shift in that movie where mm -hmm. it's supposed to be about Jane Austen. And it's so, you know, all that subtlety should be in there. And it is to a certain extent. But then there's this sort of strange sex scene where a lot of things happen and there are like naked people having sex. And then suddenly the main character also finds out that her uncle has been sexually abusing black women in Antigua. And there's this like this very strange mm. tonal shift. It's, it's very strange. And we talked yeah. about how the director doesn't handle that very well. And so with Moose Movie, it's so opposite because all of the relationships are really built on like eye contact, subtleties and like like body shifting you know what I mean and mm -hmm. people's movements around the room and things like that so like Autumn DeWeld earned that like hand squeeze 
you know, and like, oh yeah, and she knows because like the camera is zoomed in on their hands. There's nothing else to focus on. She's like, guys, look, these characters want to fuck. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, she, I mean, she, she, I mean, she. What she's obviously recognized is that Emma, for as as much as she protests that she doesn't want to get married, marriage is all she thinks about. You know, mm-hmm. she thinks she can't get married because she's her dad's caretaker. You know, because again, she is the Mercury that's circling closest around the sun that is Mr. Woodhouse. But I mean, her her obsession with matchmaking um, at the beginning, she's obsessed with matchmaking because she wants to get married. She wants to be an actual person <laughs> as opposed to just this just this person who has who is essentially the the lady of Hartfield um, mm-hmm. in the way that she's expected to be because she's the only daughter and she knows that she can't leave her father because she just can't because mm-hmm. he's the person who's in charge. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she recognizes and Autumn DeWilde recognizes that and, and builds that into the DNA of the movie. It's just so mm-hmm. amazingly well done. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, I think Mr. Knightley says that in a couple of scenes in the movie too, where he's like, especially when Emma's, sister Isabella is leaving he kind of looks over and he's like you know like you can never leave me right like this Mm -hmm. you know and and it's so sad and like I agree I think like Emma thinks the only way that she can be recognized as an individual almost is to get married and have another identity other than her father's caretaker which is kind of ironic because usually we think of like women getting married and losing their identity but I think Emma is smart enough to mm-hmm. know that if she gets married, she will be the lady of her own house. And, but I think she does, she has that like emotional pull in the other way toward her father as well, because she knows she also has pretty much full domain over Hartfield. And that sort of comes into play in the end as well, where, which I love. And see, this is something that to me, Pride and Prejudice just falls a little bit short of because Mr. Knightley offers to come and live in Hartfield rather than staying in his own mansion, uh, his own manor and, you know, taking Emma into his sphere of influence. You know, he offers and says like, if it'll make you feel better about getting married, I'll just come and join your father, which I also think is just so sweet because of the relationship that is built in the book and the movie with between Mr. Knightley and Mr. Norris, uh, Mr. Norris. I'm sorry. I'm going back to, Mansfield Park, Mr. Woodhouse. <laughs> and I think the physical comedy that Autumn DeWilde puts into the movie is so funny. Especially with, yeah, Bill Nye. But right. you're talking about one of the not necessarily flaws or failings of the movie for someone like the uninitiated person like myself is that I didn't understand the relationship between Mr. Knightley and the Woodhouses. I'm like, okay, so he's around a lot. Does that mean he, it seems like more than a friend to this family. So is he like a part of their family? Like, I, I wasn't really sure on that uh, and uh, of their roles too. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know that his role was to be, you know, to look after this estate, but I'm like, does he have another job outside of that? I, I, I really didn't know the mechanics no. <laughs> of the society. Yeah, it's so, so Emma's sister Isabella is married to Mr. Knightley's brother. Right. So he comes around the house. They've grown up around each other. And 
so I think the kind of the joke is that Mr. Knightley is like the only person that Mr. Woodhouse can kind of like stand and like has in the house a lot. Um, he's the only person that I think there's this line in the book about how like everybody bothers Mr. Woodhouse, you know, like he doesn't have he he hates having company over. Mm-hmm. He hates all that stuff. But like Mr. Knightley is just the constant that's always been there. And so it's, it's just kind of a joke that he's like the only one that right. Mr. Woodhouse could stand. <laughs> and on on one end, I do appreciate how Autumn DeWild just flings you into this universe because you know, it feels like I'm being nitpicky here, but I also hate when movies go out of their way to explain relationships. Like sure. when someone will come into the room and another person will be like, oh, hey, sis. Hey, bro. <laughs> like, did you see mom today? And it's like, yeah. so they're trying to set up that like, oh, they're brothers. So I like how Adam DeWall doesn't hold your hand either. But I think there should be a little bit more of a balance between trying to laying down the ground rules before just like throwing you into this universe when I didn't really understand the mechanics, but. Oh, this is a movie for Austinites. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) But I I should say, I, I still do enjoy the movie for, it's really funny. And let's talk about Bill Nye for a second. Sure. Oh, I wanted to go back also to finish off Mr. Knightley's character. He's also the Lord of Mr. Martin, the farmer, like Mr. Martin runs the farm that Mr. Knightley owns. So like, that's why, that's why they're confidants. Gotcha. Okay. I thought they were just friends. I didn't understand that. Well, that's kind of, I think that's the funny thing about, you know, not understand no, i'm not i'm not calling you dumb i'm just saying that i think that's fair though up, it's fair to call if, me dumb. If you would, like, they would never have known each other they would never have been friends unless mr martin had mm-hmm. been working for mr knightley in that way in that society yeah it's tough i don't know then how i would have written that because it's tough to explain that relationship to like you know, it'd be cheap to have them have a conversation for Mr. Knightley to be like, how's my farm doing? I own it, by the yeah. way. You know, it's like, yeah, that's tough. But I think, yeah, it, it's that's why I say that if you haven't read the book and you're not familiar with the history of the time period, if I were to tell, like, for example, my parents to watch this, I would tell them, read a summary, maybe read you know, the Wikipedia page or something, just have a little bit of background to go into it because it does sort of, if you're, if you're not going to rewatch it a few times, because maybe you're not as into movies as we are or something like those things could be confusing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But okay. Bill Nye. Uh, no, I mean, well, <laughs> I was just, I don't know exactly what, what I was thinking about, but it's the whole Mr. Knightley thing. What, one thing that I think is nice about the movie is that it sort of saws off the the dark underbelly of the novel, which is that mm-hmm. this was the only possible choice that Emma had if she wanted to get married. <laughs> because, I mean, because the novel, the, the novel is much more about the cages that, that Emma is in. Um, and I think, I mean, you don't want to do that when you're doing like a romantic comedy movie that's much more of a bummer <laughs> you sort of think yeah. about it but i mean the way that mr knightley is portrayed in most of the novel up until about about three quarters of the way through he emma regards him as like an older brother which she doesn't know anything about what he might feel about her up until he just flips out right at the end and it's mainly because she's like you can't marry harriet you can't marry Harriet. You can't marry anybody because she wants her nephew to to inherit <laughs> Hartfield right. as opposed as opposed mm-hmm. to as opposed to him. 
But when you start looking at the possible relationships, the people that you could actually marry, he's the only person who fits all those. He's the only one who ticks all the boxes, except for Frank, mm-hmm. Frank Churchill. Frank Churchill could. Right. But who is the actor who plays Frank, Frank Churchill? He is such he's, Yeah, his name asshole. is. Yeah, his <laughs> name is uh, Callum Turner. What else is he in? I know I've seen that that smug, hittable face in so, so many things. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think his casting is so great because he normally plays either scumbags or, oh, he plays a punk rocker in the movie Green Room. A, a good guy, but like, you know, like a punk mm-hmm. rocker kind of anarchist asshole, you know, who, who thinks he's Is that edgy, that movie but... where Patrick Stewart is like a Nazi or something like that? Yep, that's exactly the movie. <laughs> I'm going to watch and... that movie. I've, I've heard about it, but I've never actually yeah, Callum Turner has has a small role in it, but he, you know, that movie's showing that these punk rockers think they're like so edgy and hardcore, and then they meet actual evil Nazis, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, we're 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 nothing compared to them. They don't want to be like them." But they're just showing the dichotomy between these two groups. So he's great in Green Room. He's also Callum Turner is also in let's see Assassin's Creed. He's a small role in that. Victor Frankenstein. He, he plays these really like creepy jerks, um, <laughs> and that's why I I knew of him a bit. But when he showed up in this, I was like, oh, so he's kind of playing against type. He's like the cool guy, but then of course at the oh, end it comes no, around. I'm like, oh, I understand. And but. <laughs> No, I, I was. It was really cool to see him in this because, yeah, he usually plays like the Cockney, thick British, like mm-hmm. accent type guys, and here he's all posh. And yeah, he, I think he did really well. He's at the he's at the right social level to be acceptable right. for Emma, and and right. she always has to think about that when it comes to matchmaking, which is one reason why when Mister Elton just throws himself at her in the carriage, she's just like boom just like stiff yeah. arms to the floor because even yes. if he wasn't even if he hadn't been drunk mm-hmm. and throwing himself at her there was no way that she, there's no way that he would be acceptable um right. in terms of the social hierarchy where where everybody was so mm-hmm. it's like mr knightley or frank churchill so that's that's the cage that she's in you know she's right. in this cage and the thing about the book is that she gets lucky Mm-hmm. that the guy who's actually in love with her and that she's in love with is the person who happens to be the right rank. Right. And what's kind of creepy is that Mr. Knightley has basically been her older brother the entire time. <laughs> yeah. And he's quite a bit older. I think they lessened the age gap in the movie or they at least make it look like he's yeah. much younger yeah. because in the book, I believe he's 16 years older than her. I guess something like that. Yeah. Right. Likes them silver boxes, I guess. Hey, we all have a type. Well, and, I mean, technically, he is her brother-in-law uh-huh. by marriage. So, yeah, I mean, it's... But but there is a line about, like, during the dance where she says, we're not so much brother and sister to make this... Mm-hmm. Weird. Inappropriate. Or, yeah, right? something yeah. on the... But, yeah, I mean, silver you're right. Box. I mean, like, she... She's only 21. <laughs> 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 Wait, that made, that made Mr. Knightley sound so much worse. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, Johnny Flynn, this was my introduction to him. He plays Mr. Knightley. Uh, both Anna Taylor-Joy and Johnny Flynn, I d- described them as having this 
electric energy that it's like impossible to look away from them when they're talking. It's just something about the way words come out of their mouth that is so engaging. They could be saying anything. And I instantly became a fan of Johnny Flynn after watching this movie. And I recently saw another movie he was in a couple of years ago called Beast. Now that movie is phenomenal. Jesse Buckley also stars in that. It, it's an intense movie. I would recommend it to cinephiles. It's a thriller. So Beast, Johnny Flynn is great in that. And that's what uh, Autumn DeWilde saw Beast and was like, I need to cast Johnny Flynn in my movie. It, it, like, I don't know what role, but I'm going to find mm-hmm. something for him. And yeah, she put him in this role. And he's so smooth. I, I think he could be, should they reboot Bond? I, I think he would make a great, bond or he even a bond a, he would be a great bond or a bond villain yes yeah. and he would totally kill it he just has this he just has this alluring energy that makes him it's appropriate for the role because both emma with her status and with her duties thinks that she's the center of the universe mm-hmm. and wants to be and then there's the mr. string puller of the universe yeah and mm-hmm. then there's mr knightley over here who's you know, constantly pointing out to Emma, like you're being, you're being rude. You're being a dick here. You, you're, you're using your class against other people of lower class to manipulate them. And then he becomes her center of the universe, bringing her down to what's the to earth. Yeah. And man, what a, what a great performance. I, I would obviously want him to get best supporting actor nomination, but Mm -hmm. I, the only awards attention I think this movie is going to receive is best costume design or best production design, maybe Anna Taylor-Joy for best actress, but I doubt it because this movie didn't make, it got great critical reviews, but well, we talked about that a little bit. You said that it might be interesting to see since so many movies have been pushed off this year. Yeah. That maybe this movie will sort of float to the top in a few ways because it doesn't have as much to compete with. Yeah. And I hope that's the case at the Academy Awards because this movie deserves so much. Um, but I, I wanted to sort of talk about and dig into Mr. Knightley and Emma's relationship. I think that something that I really enjoy about this is not only does Jane Austen, so she has this theme in a few of her books where like, again, take for example, Pride and Prejudice, where Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy hate each other, basically just because they have to and you know, like, they're, I won't it's a romantic comedy. Her. That's, that's what happens in romantic right, comedies. Exactly. Now, this is what, again, I think Emma goes further to develop in their relationship. Mr. Knightley is technically her brother-in-law and, you know, they've grown up together and he's sort of been her mentor for a long time, but they don't necessarily hate each other. They have a good relationship, but Emma is rightfully sort of put in her place by him over and over and over again. And I think that's a deeper relationship than they hate each other at the beginning of the story because it's a romantic comedy and that's how they're structured. She has a lot of reason to feel humbled by him. And I think that's a more compelling motivation for me. And like, that sort of is what compels me toward her character. Again, like I said in the beginning, like, I feel like I need to be humbled a lot. Like I am a very prideful person. (laughs) And so when I sort of step out of line and I sort of think of myself as too good, like Danny sometimes has to like yank me back. And I think that that's helpful. And I think it's a good thing to 
I think that's a good thing that Emma finally realizes is like, he doesn't necessarily only want to make her a better person because he thinks of himself as a mentor. Like he loves her and he wants her to be a better person in general. Um, And he wants to be with the kind of person who can become better. So Mm -hmm. I just think that they're, oh, and I also want to, sorry, I know I've been talking a lot, but one of my favorite quotes that really nails something that I do, which is why I think like I'm a very Emma-like character. So this is my favorite I think this might be my favorite line in the book. So this is Mr. Knightley talking to Mrs. Weston about Emma's faults. And he says, Emma has been meeting to read more ever since she was 12 years old. I have seen a great many lists of her drawing up at various times of books that she meant to read regularly through. And very good lists they were, very well chosen and very neatly arranged, sometimes alphabetically and sometimes by other rule. (laughs) This is so me. The list she drew up When only 14, I remember thinking it did her judgment so much credit that I preserved it some time, and I dare say she may have made out a very good list now. But I have done with expecting any course of steady reading from Emma. She will never submit to anything requiring industry and patience and a subjection of the fancy to the understanding. (laughs) I think that is just so, so incredible. Like, I mean, I do read and I do tick off the books that I read off a list, but sometimes the lists become the end point sometimes. <laughs> so. Well, the, 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 I would say, I would say you're not Emma because you actually read the books. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the point that the, the point that Knightley is trying to make, and this is kind of the other soft tragedy of Emma is that she is incredibly intelligent. There's no doubt about that. I mean, Austin portrays her in such a way that it's obvious that she's smart. And in the in the movie, she's obviously smarter than everybody else mm-hmm. in the entire in the entire movie. The problem with the the tragedy of Emma is that she is rich. Mm-hmm. She is at this place in in society where she doesn't have to do anything. And so one of the reasons why she goes through this process of matchmaking, all this sort of stuff. I, I, partly it's that she can't, she thinks she can't get married because of her dad. But the other part of it is that she's bored. Right. She, she mm-hmm. is a yeah. woman who is not challenged to do anything, which is one reason why she hates Jane Fairfax so much. Right. Because yeah. Jane is her joker. No. Yeah. Actually, she is Jane Fairfax's Joker because Jane Fairfax <laughs> yeah. is essentially Batman <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. Right. She can do everything and she's perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because she's been forced to actually practice and do things that so, so that she can actually play the pianoforte in a way that... So she's marketable on the marriage market? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But Emma doesn't need to do that because she is inherently mar- marketable in the marriage market. And so she mm-hmm. has been allowed to just allow her talents to stagnate in, in a very real sense. And that's, that's, that's one reason why the book is, I mean, it, I think Austin said that it was the most sparkling of all of her novels, um, mm-hmm. which is true. But on the other hand, it's like deeply sad when you think about it mm-hmm. because Emma is the only one of her heroines who doesn't have to, like in all of the other novels, the heroines are women who either know they have to fight for a man mm-hmm. or know they have to fight for a man and they say, fuck it. 
which is like one reason why a lot of people like Pride and why Pride and Prejudice is probably the most, everybody's favorite because mm-hmm. Elizabeth Bennet she recognizes that she's like fuck you world yeah yeah hmm. mm-hmm. um, and she just happens to luck out at the end but Emma does okay. not have to do anything <laughs> yeah she's, yeah she's already there right she's already at the top and she already mm-hmm. has a manor basically if her father dies like mm-hmm. yeah she knows her sister in law is not gonna kick her out. Right. Um, <laughs> unlike, unlike, uh, unlike Elizabeth and, and Pride and Prejudice. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the tragedy is she has this such potential that's wasted because of the privilege that she has. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that Knightley seems to recognize in a way that none of the other characters in the novel realize is that she is much smarter than she is much, she's she's so much smarter than she has the the ability to actually portray. I guess is the best mm-hmm. way of putting it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that Autumn de Wilde does a really good job at showing these little cracks of who Emma really is when she's with Harriet Smith. We haven't talked about Harriet yet, but she's a wonderful character in the book and wonderfully played in the movie. Who is the actress? Mia Goth. Mia Goth. Name. Yeah, she she's so good. Perfectly. <laughs> Yeah, perfectly cast for this. And she's also playing against type because she's normally in like dark thrillers. She was in The Cure for Wellness, the Gore Verbinski movie. That that movie looks great, but is not on a story level, not not really well written. And then she was also in Suspiria two years ago. Oh, That's a freaky movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but and then she was also is that in... the remake of the Dario Argento movie. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. I haven't seen. Yeah. I haven't seen the remake. No, but. It, it's good. It's long. It's two and a half hours, but it's it's good. I would recommend it. And then she's also in this kind of weird, artsy, fartsy sci-fi movie called High Life. And in all these movies, she's playing this very quiet, you know, she has a naturally high-pitched voice, but she kind of plays this little, like, ethereal, like, you you like you don't really know what her deal is. And then in, in this movie, I get completely against type, this yeah. little mousy, like, oh cute, kind so of sweet. a little naive... <laughs> Um, very nice yeah uh character and so yeah I, it's nice to see her you know break yeah, out of her she show. was she was so well cast for this role and i think like of course emma starts out by trying to quote unquote better her station and obviously it's not necessarily because of who harriet is it's because she sort of has this intrigue of we don't know who her parents are and emma thinks that that's interesting and she wants to again like better harriet's station but she really does become emotionally attached to Harriet. And I think Harriet teaches her indirectly that Emma was using her. Mm-hmm. And like, there is this great moment at the end of the movie where Emma ends up giving her this hug because she feels like so terrible that Mr. Knightley doesn't love Harriet. And she just she has this like kind of emotional break where she starts crying and they have this like great hug and, you know, I think by that point, Harriet has accepted Mr. Martin's second proposal and stuff. But like, I think that it's just, it's a great relationship. I think it's a really great literary relationship, you know, that Emma starts with this one motivation and then sort of realizes, oh, wow, like this is a friend, you know, this is like, this is someone I actually care about and she's below my station or like, oh, she, Emma has this wonderful line. It's so mean about Mr. Martin about how he's too high in station to be recognized by her because if she helped him, like he wouldn't be charity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, So it's kind of the same thing with Harriet. Like 
And, you know, at the end of the novel, they're obviously at the same station as well since they get married. But yeah, it's just like Emma sort of breaks that wall of like, oh, you, you were worth my attention because you were at this low enough status that I could raise you up. But she finally realized like, no, this is a friend. Like we've been through some stuff. And yeah, I think that's a great way of showing her character arc. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Mr. Knightley is confronting Emma about when Harriet first denies Mm -hmm. farmer boy what's his name mr martin mr martin um and when yeah and when emma is making up these excuses of saying like oh harriet you know is not uh mr martin's equal and mr knightley is like you're right he's her superior like you're not you're you're projecting your own your own uh wants and desires onto harriet messing up her own life and at that point in the story Emma doesn't have that self-awareness. So to see her throughout the story slowly gain gain um, that self-awareness is very satisfying. And again, I in some of the reviews that I read on Letterboxd, a lot of people are saying that like they don't like Emma. And it's like, yeah, she's a she's an anti-hero mm. and the whole point of the story is to have her switch. Wow, yeah. these people are clearly stupid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And it's well, like the, you're supposed to not like her. At the, the magic of the, of the book is you don't like her at first. She is an yes. asshole. Yes. <laughs> yes, she's an absolute bitch. She's so mean. Her and okay, we we sort of touched on the scene where she nails Miss Bates. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't know. See, like that that scene in the book is so. It's like weird to say that it's emotional, but you know that Miss Bates is a silly old woman and you know she's like poor and and she just like chatters on and on and on and it's funny like there are some paragraphs in the book where miss bates is talking and you can literally just skip it because the point (laughs) is she just talks and talks and talks who's the actress who's the actress she's so good she's incredible she's so good but the problem so is good. that to capture Miss Bates, you need three pages of Miss Bates. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and I can I can see how that again, like there are pages that in Emma that you can skip because Jane Austen is like making the joke, like she takes up space by talking, Laura, and it's really Laura, annoying. Laura, you what, can't what? You, you can't skip those pages. Because there are nuggets of truth inside all of that yeah, verbal no, diarrhea. Right. I don't know. She like she ends up like revealing things like um, you know, like the proximity of Mr. Churchill and Jane Fairfax and like that's how they got together and all that. If stuff. you go back and you and you go back and you reread everything Miss Bates says, the, yeah. you you know it's oh, all okay. There we see. There yeah. we go. Now yeah. it's one right. sentence per three pages of Miss Bates going bananas. But Right, exactly. Exactly. And also, so Miranda Hart, she's actually been a favorite actress of mine for a long time. Um, she has her own show. Miranda and she's hilarious in it she's a actually she's a stand-up comedian she's really funny but she's also in call the midwife um these are that's where I've seen her before shows Mm -hmm. yeah she's wonderful it's such a it's a lovely show I I really enjoy it it's been on for a really long time and it's uh I think it's on Netflix now but yeah she's a wonderful character she's just like a very loving person (laughs) and she's always kind of plays this flustered 
very gawky character mm-hmm. because she's very tall and she makes that sort of a physical comedy thing. But her <laughs> Miss Woodhouse <laughs> has invited us to Hawksfield. <laughs> oh my gosh. Everything she does in this movie, like it's like this character was written for her to play it. Yeah. And she's just so engaged. But but that's the thing, like she's such a tragic she, sort of she's like fallen from mm-hmm. the heights of society into a very lowly place. Like she's basically living in an apartment with her elderly mother and she's allowed to associate this with these people because she had been at that high society at one point and they all sort of pity her. And so to have Emma, like again, to go back to the book, like to to read Emma's way that she just eviscerates Miss Bates during that picnic is so sad. And like, even in the movie- Is it the same dialogue in the movie? Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same dialogue where it's Frank Churchill sort of sets up this whole thing about, oh, you know, Emma's bored. So like, go ahead and say something that will entertain Emma and- Or say like two entertaining things and one dull one or three dull moments. Right, and then Emma comes back and says, oh, for, you know, for Miss Bates, like the problem will be coming up with only three things that are dull. And like, why would you stop at three? Yeah. And when we saw it at the Arclight Hollywood, we saw it in a packed audience and it was filled with Austinites, Austin fans. And then everyone was like, oh, shit. But it's like wild in the Jane Austen fan way. Yes. Which means like everyone like in took like for like, Yeah. Exactly. And like covered their and mouths that, with their hands. That moment, I got to say, fingers. seeing that it really, thinking about that moment really makes me miss going to movies with big audiences. I mean, as much as I hate when people talk or, you know, eat food during movies, I mean, I, it really bugs me when people do that. That moment really elevated the, the moment for right. me. Right. Well, and, and it's just, it is really emotional because, again, it's one of those moments where you can kind of strip away the Austenisms and you understand like from everybody's reactions and then of course like a little bit later when mr knightley comes back at emma yeah no just visually when you know after mr knightley like chides her and she decides she needs to apologize and you go from these wide open vistas these beautiful landscapes and then emma is walking up this cramped ass staircase up to yeah. this tiny ass apartment. It's just a, just a beautiful juxtaposition. It totally is. And like, again, I, we literally say this every single episode, but like going between a novel and then a visualization of a novel, like that's the way to show that this character has been humbled and she needs to go apologize to someone. And she's not in a station, like Mr. Knightley says, it's like, you know, if Miss Bates was rich and in a position of power, that probably would have been fine and everybody would have been able to laugh it off. But everyone kind of knows that everyone pities her. And so Mm -hmm. it's not okay to put her in her place, quote unquote, because she already kind of is like, she's just there kind of, she has a pity invitation. And then it makes it that much more inappropriate when Mr. Weston played by... Rupert Graves. Rupert Graves makes that elevating joke about mm-hmm. Emma, about how she's perfect. And the two most perfect letters in the alphabet are M and A because they spell Emma. And, you know, and, and Mr. Knightley points out that everybody respects you and everybody takes their cues from you. So if you go ahead and cut Miss Bates off at the knees, everybody's going to think that's okay. And it's not like, it's just, there's just so many levels of, sadness i think in that moment that 
oh man, I just can't handle it. But it's just, it's so well done in the movie. Yeah. And that shot of her after Mr. Knightley has just chastised her for going too hard on Miss Bates of her riding in the carriage, that kind of POV shot. And yeah. when in the Q&A with Autumn DeWilde, they're talking about how they spent all day trying to get that shot, waiting for the right lighting. And whenever mm-hmm. they would go, the, the dolly would fall off the carriage. <laughs> we, we should... Yeah, shout out cinematographer Christopher Blauvelt for shooting this movie. Now, as Laura has pointed out, the digital photography of this movie, as opposed to, you know, film, most Jane Austen adaptations have been shot on film and look very classical. They look, you know, film is able to capture the look of 19th century, excuse me, life in England. And I think the really cool thing about the photography in this movie of it being digital is that you know it it doesn't look like what england probably looked like back in this time but th- that's not what autumn de wild is going for but she's the colors are blown out yeah the colors are blown out very pastel i think the movie to me it kind of looks like like a wedding cake in a sense mm-hmm. like buildings look like they have frosting on them and mm-hmm. you know wedding cake colors you know white of course but the pastel blues and pinks, pinks and and, and and that digital photography really makes it pop and really makes the style that autumn de wild this very you know very stylized it's not necessarily unrealistic but it's certainly exaggerated in the saturation of the colors and i think that digital photography really helps out making her vision come to yeah. life and not to sound like too much of a nerd but i also think the sharpness that you can get with the digital really it pulls your attention to things and like the details and obviously that's something that we've drilled into our listeners ears about how jane austen is a writer of subtleties and if you can sh- sharpen those things like that's very helpful rather than have them like blend into the background like like eye contact and we can talk about eye contact you want the fucking eyes to be looking (laughs) where the eyes are looking exactly exactly like you can't you can't necessarily let those things drop off into the background and be blurry just because you want the candles to stick out like she wants you to focus on the eye contact right this has got some of the best eye acting i've ever seen just like my lord like laser beams just shooting across the frame oh my goodness Absolutely. Oh my gosh. When they all walk into the ball scene and Jane Fairfax enters right behind Emma, you see Frank Churchill look at Jane Fairfax. Yeah. And the beauty of that scene is you think when you first watch it, you think that she's look, Jane is looking at Mr. Knightley, but Mm -hmm. then because he enters right at the same time Mm -hmm. that Frank does. Mm -hmm. And you think, oh, maybe she's looking at there because, you know, they have that duet earlier on in the movie Mm -hmm. jane and mr knightley and fun fact about that all the actors playing music in this movie that's all they're real they uh, did that for real they're all real singers and real real musicians and that's anna taylor joy playing the piano and singing and then jane fairfax that actress her name is amber anderson is her name and yeah, Autumn DeWild was talking about her in the Q&A of that, how she's like this concert pianist who oh, is wow. also a singer. And Johnny Flynn, I mean, that guy's a talent. He's a folk singer-songwriter, so he, he mostly plays guitar and writes his own songs. They're all on YouTube if you want to go check him out. He's, he's really good. But he, he also plays violin and the cello and all that. So that's all, that's all real, them wow. playing. Wow, so impressive. Yeah. 
But yeah, so there's that going back to the eye contact. Yeah, there's that little duet that they have. And you can clearly see that Emma is a little bit jealous of, oh, of that. Of oh, and so jealous. And, <laughs> so jealous. and the first time you see the movie, you're like, oh, maybe there might be something between Mr. Knightley and Jane. And then the second time you watch it, knowing that they're secretly Frank and Jane are secretly married, you put it together. It's engaged. like, oh, oh, engaged. Excuse me. Oh, I see. And you ca- and you catch those little eye flickers all throughout. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, it speaks. And you can every- totally understand why Jane is upset when, I mean, like, Frank is a douchebag. Like, he, he like, way over flirts with Emma. Like, if they wanted to throw people off, all they had to do was, like, not be in the same place at the same time. But Frank Churchill, like, flirts with Emma on that picnic. And it's totally understandable why Jane Fairfax is like, bitch. <laughs> Well, he is yeah. a puppy. Just a damnable puppy. <laughs> mm, he's a douchebag. <laughs> um, yeah, well. We tried that? to talk about Bold Nye a couple times, and I'm I'm mad it's taken us over an hour to finally get to him. But Bill Nye, what a guy. Am I right? <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. This has been Film is Lit. Now, I, he is so great in everything he's in. And Laura has talked about this before with About Time, that movie, where he's so he funny in that. I mean, about time, right? he, incredible in Have that. Have you seen that, Sean? I haven't seen that, no. I will pitch this movie one more time. It's... In a slight way, it's a romantic comedy. Like, on its face, it's basically a romantic comedy. But there are elements that give it a much larger theme about not using the past to sort of, like, fix things. Like, there's time travel in it. There. I said it. But basically, like, the characters can use time travel to fix things, but they finally realize that it's better to just live in the moment. It's like the theme of Midnight in Paris. It's like you should look back in the past to learn, but you should stay in the present and look forward in the future to succeed. That's kind of the... So yeah, there's like, there's a, there's a lot going on in there, but he plays the father, Bill Nighy, and he's so funny. And he just has these mannerisms, like these very subtle mannerisms that make him this great fatherly figure. And so to see him playing this absolute ridiculous fatherly figure as mr woodhouse is just so enjoyable the first time that you see him he's like falling down the stairs basically like and he has this like strut that he does (laughs) i think actually a lot of actors in this movie use their shoulders a lot when they do this and they're walking yeah Um, they do he has this yeah like i i noticed that a lot like the the girls in mrs gottlieb's house or whatever like they do that with their little shells and stuff like that but He's just so funny. Yeah. And you talked about the character of Mr. Woodhouse a little bit earlier, Sean, but what do you think that Bill Nighy brings to this character that makes it unique and like the best thing that Bill Nighy as an actor brings to the character? He brings a mixture. I mean, the thing that you don't get from the book is that he is supposed to be this aristocrat that everybody's just sucking up to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bill Nighy despite how ridiculous he is, looks like he should have like a Roman bust carved out of him. I mean, yeah. It's just nose, like, his aquiline nose. It's like, <laughs> you know what? You know what? That is yeah. what an emperor looks like. <laughs> yeah. He has this, I mean, because he always has this, I mean, the great thing about Bill, Bill Nye, and every time I've ever seen him, uh, and I mainly think of, 
think of him from like things like Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead where mm, yeah I mean he's just playing this high class aristocratic character and just subverting it entirely mm-hmm. by being a dipshit <laughs> and <laughs> love actually he does that too right like, yeah exactly and this is like the this is I mean Mr. Woodhouse is the quintessential uh, version of an aristocratic character who is a dipshit (laughs) and so (laughs) yes he's got this he's got this the way that he the way that he performs this is just like he he marches around with this or shrugs around i don't know what what verb to use he's got this air that Mm -hmm. he deserves the kind of treatment he's getting yeah but he's a moron. <laughs> it's, it's just, I don't know how to describe it. It's this perfect juxtaposition between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he feels a draft and he's right. going to stand up and just order his footman around. And these poor <laughs> fuckers have to do it because that's their job. Right. And it's just perfect. There, there, there is something about mm-hmm. the way that he can do that high status character who is an idiot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. It's very Monty Python. That's the only thing I can, I can compare yeah. it to. It's <laughs> it's very, very Monty Python. When I saw that he was in it, I was just like, Bill Nye as Mr. Woodhouse. Mr. Woodhouse's guy just like wanders, just sits around and goes, give me my gruel, give me my gruel. And I was like, when I saw that he was going to, once I saw it the, for, for the first time, I was like, no, he's perfect. Because yeah. why would anybody listen to somebody who's just like, me, me, me. No, they'll listen yeah. to somebody who's just like, no, gruel, bitches. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. It's not, it's innocence. Innocence, right? Oh, yeah. yeah the, right in the beginning, the first line. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is so funny. He, innocence. Innocence. Yeah. Innocence, right? Mm, it's a drop. Yeah. The, yeah. He, like Anna Taylor Joy and Johnny Flynn, another one of those actors is just anything he says is just so engaging, alluring, unique. It's mm-hmm. like you're learning the English language over again. Every time he speaks, um, I'd like to take this time to shout out my brother, Tim, once again, him and I share a liking of the, the underworld movies with uh, Kate Beckinsale. They're not, I would, I would say the first two <laughs> underworld movies are actually like well-made, you know, they're, they're not Citizen Kane or anything like they're that, pretty but decent action movies. I'll go, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> they're, they're fun. And the third movie rise of the lichens does not star Kate Beckinsale, but that movie's not the best, but I would say it's elevated by, I don't know, two stars by Bill Nye's performance. And uh, my brother and I, had this inside joke and i should say tim loves these movies more than i do and he introduced them to me so i i owe my love to bill nye to him <laughs> but he is bill nye has this absurd line reading where there there's a lichen a werewolf who's on trial and bill nye's the vampire overlord sitting on the throne and his line reading he goes imprisonment for all time and it's like the weirdest <laughs> most like out of he like starts screaming for no reason and it's so funny and it fits the tone of the movie perfectly and so yeah whenever <laughs> bill nye comes on screen my brother and i are always like imprisonment for all time <laughs> and he just has this way of talking that's so unique to him. Well, sorry, not to cut you no, off, but he actually, we quote him quite a bit as well from the movie About Time because he gives 
his son, who's played by Donald Gleason, his best man speech. And he goes, I've only loved three men in my life. The first one is Uncle Desmond. The second one, B.B. King, obviously. And he yeah. sort of does this, like, this sort of shrug. And, and then he says, and of course, my son, Tim, and who's not your brother. Yeah. But, Different. but we, we do. We actually quote this quite a bit where... Like we go BB King, obviously, when we're, you know, listing things or something like that. And he does. And I think like something that's so engaging about not only him, but you talked about Anya Taylor Joy and Johnny Flynn, like they tend to use their full body in their performance. And Bill Nye is a really good example of this. Like, even if you just watch his hands, like he's given himself something to do with his hands and his fingers and his feet and his clothing and his hair like like when he like you know sort of brushes his hair back from his forehead like those mannerisms i think are so engaging because they make for a full character yeah you know and there's just stuff to watch like it's just fun to watch their performances because they just make so many decisions simultaneously mr woodhouse that character it's akin to meryl streep in Little Women, where both Bill Nye and Meryl Streep in, in their films, they have about like nine minutes of screen time at most, but they make such an impression and they're there for the comic relief. But underneath the goofball character is, is actually a real person that mm-hmm. has experienced loss in their past and is, is kind of in the, their own cages of wealth. Like you mentioned wealth and, and how Emma's in this cage. And so, yeah, I, I, that's a good comparison. Yeah, that's I think, a really good between... comparison now that you see yeah. it. Now that I, yeah. Yeah, but I, I wish there was at um, the Oscars a best casting award because. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, and oh, I understand that. Easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand it's difficult for that to like decide who, because I mean, obviously there are casting directors, but sometimes casting comes from just the regular director or producer. So it's hard to really like nail down who should get the awards. But yeah, if there was a best casting, I think this would get it. Maybe they should just add an award called best ensemble or best. Well, SAG SAG has that. (laughs) that, Oh, really? Yeah. Screen Actors Guild has that. But maybe the Academy will one day do that. I mean, for years, people have been asking for that, but it hasn't come out. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Uh, well. Oh, jinx. <laughs> pinch, poke, owe me a Coke. Uh, <laughs> the listeners can't see you pinch and poke me, so uh, they, you didn't, Danny didn't do it, so it doesn't count. Slap, tickle, owe me a pickle. <laughs> um, uh... Any cl- any last closing thoughts there doc as we're in the dark now we lost power but, <laughs> but we still got internet so yeah any last final thoughts well i would just my last thought about this movie is that it might be the best austin adaptation i've ever seen mm-hmm. a lot of people point to like the bbc adaptation of pride and prejudice which is really good but this is more compact it's more mm-hmm to the point it's more i mean the actors are great i mean Mm -hmm. in both of them but in this it's just like the cutting the the cuts between scenes are just so quick it's Mm -hmm. it works as a movie more than just like oh you've read this book here's this long sprawling version of it it's it's amazing it is an amazing adaptation yeah i i completely agree I think the one scene that I really would have liked to see, and perhaps this is on the deleted scenes, we didn't watch it. 
I really would have liked to see the scene where Mr. Elton comes up with that little riddle for Emma and Emma thinks it's for Harriet and Mm -hmm. the solving of the clues turns into courtship. And of course, Emma solves it very quickly and Harriet can't solve it because like she's not very bright. Well, she at least doesn't have very much education, but Harriet solves it and she's like, see, this is why Mr. Elton, Mr. Elton, she takes it as a sign. She's like, Mr. Elton likes you. And it's a really fun little scene. And it just sort of is very indicative of how when Emma becomes focused on something, she can't see anything outside of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really fun scene. And I, I just think that the, of course, I mean, if you just go back to Jane Austen's writing, like the riddle is very clever. I just think it's a really fun little scene that I wish was in the movie. But I guess if you had to cut something, maybe that's okay. Uh, but yeah, four out of four stars for the movie. Obviously, I feel like I can't even rate the book because I love it so much. It's definitely my top 10, but obviously four out of four. And if you enjoy Jane Austen, then read it. If you want to just jump into something different other than some contemporary novels, I think it's very enjoyable as well. I forgot to rate it. Four out of four for the movie. Four out of four for the book. You don't have to rate it. I usually forget (laughs) to rate things. So here we are. Zero out of four for me. (laughs) Now, I I didn't read the book, as I said, but I was really taken with the movie. I think it's the most accessible Jane Austen movie over Pride and Prejudice, which, I mean, it, it seems, as you said, it's everyone's favorite Jane Austen book, it seems like, or at least the popular one. And it's the popular movie, too. The movie was great as well. I think this is better just because of the sheer talent on every single aspect the the cast as you said stacked incredible it made me a huge fan of johnny flynn Mm -hmm. it made me an even bigger fan of anya taylor joy love bill nighy already and then i hope christopher blauvelt gets a nomination for best cinematography like laura said with all the movies half of the movies being pushed to 2021 maybe there's a chance i mean it didn't this movie got critically acclaimed but experts are not predicting it's going to get any nominations but if it were i would say yeah costume design production design cinematography on taylor joy definitely deserves best actress but who knows if that's that's gonna happen probably not oh share that fun fact about her scene with johnny flynn oh so that scene when mr knightley professes his love under the tree and i oh that's my favorite quote of him saying if I loved you less, I'd be able to talk about it more. Uh, what a great, what a great line. But so Autumn DeWilde added the nosebleed into yeah. that scene because she thought it would it would fit the tone, but also she herself gets nosebleeds and so does Anna Taylor-Joy. And so throughout that day when they're shooting that scene over and over again, they were putting fake blood in her nose and then after every take, Honor Taylor Joy would have to blow hard into you know tissue to get it all out so they could reapply it. And anyone who gets nosebleeds knows that the more you hard you blow your nose actually makes your nose bleed naturally. And we saw this in the deleted scenes, but while they were doing that scene, she got a nosebleed. A real nosebleed. A real nosebleed. And they're like, okay, let's roll with it. Let's roll. And like, you can hear everyone in the background being like, oh, like places, places. They're like, Johnny, like put, like, put your hand there. And they're like, and go. 
And I don't think that take made it into the final movie because, you know, the blood didn't fall exactly like where it needed to, to, you know, on the mark. But it's just crazy how she actually got a real nosebleed. I thought it was the scene. I thought that that was the cut that... I I don't remember if it was the... Anyway, it just shows like how professional Anya Taylor-Joy is as a very young actress. And she was able to pull pull, pull off like keeping blood in her nose long enough to have it trickle down (laughs) as a real nosebleed. I mean, she's just... Shout out to her. Everything I've seen her in, I adore. So, But for my rating, I don't... So movies, again, they don't need to dumb down stuff. And in fact, when they do that, that's actually, you know most of the time a bad thing but the script wasn't fully formed so it was fully accessible for someone like me it definitely is an accessible movie but i have to admit the first 30 minutes i was struggling to keep up with relationships of people the professions of everyone of how this society worked oh it's really simple everyone at the top didn't have a profession gotcha (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, so it's not a perfect script for me but i mean it's still i'm nitpicking at this point still really enjoy it certainly a well-made film funny film so three and a half out of four for me wow yeah that's disappointing but whatever what (laughs) (laughs) disappointing but yeah i guess i guess that wraps up our third episode covering jane austen novels thank you so much sean for coming on again and gracing us with your knowledge. Oh, I loved it. This is so much fun. So, <laughs> Well, I'm sure we'll choose another book that you can come on and <laughs> join us again for. You'll just be like, every single season, you'll just pop up. Ow. That's going to be great. <laughs> you good? Yeah, sorry. Just I mean, not you hurting yourself. That was, that was a bummer. But... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that there's stuff that we talked about in like every I think it's so funny that like, we're both such nerds that we're still friends with all of our teachers. And you're probably you probably make up the biggest demographic of listeners for us as well. (laughs) We're using you for views just like Emma was using Harriet for her own personal gain. (laughs) The secret's out. Yep. Um, But anyway, so thank you again, Sean, for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to join us and discuss Jane Austen's novel, Emma. Oh, you know what? Shoot. I had another question, but maybe we should just skip over it. We can talk about it afterward. It's not that important. Okay. What was it? Nah, we don't have to record. Let's wrap up. Well, yeah, maybe we'll see you next year for Dune. Now that now that the movie was uh, pushed a whole year, we yeah, I think right when we a week after we recorded the podcast, the movie was was pushed. So (laughs) that was funny how that worked out. But yeah, you'll definitely be back for that. But before that, maybe maybe Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. We'll talk about it. We should talk about this on air. <laughs> we should. But yeah. yeah, let's let the listeners go to bed. Up. Yeah. All well, right. this has been wonderful. Yep. See you on the next one. See you on the next one. And stay crispy. Now that's Pete Holmes's. We need to come up with the final line. We still don't have one. Stay lit. And you got to get real. Because film reels. Nailed it. (laughs) All righty. I'm cutting you off. (laughs) Bye.